Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. What is up, everybody? How are you today? Welcome to another episode of the Dentist Who Invest podcast, where we we welcome we welcome someone very special who is going to talk to us today on the merits of financial planning from the perspective of a CFA, a CFA who works specifically with dentists and others within the medical profession. And I'm so intrigued to learn an absolute ton today. And who is sat in front of me right now? Who we are welcoming specifically? His name is Rohit. Well, hello, and he is sat here with me today to elaborate on the things that we just talked about. How are you today, Rohit? Hello, James. I'm very well. Thank you for asking, and it's great to be here. Tremendous, my friend. Tremendous, my friend. Welcome and good to have you. So, Rohit, I've already said one thing, which we were talking just a little bit about this off camera, and I think it could do with being elaborated on and explained in greater detail because it's not something that dentists necessarily know. And that is the difference between your job title, which is a CFA versus an IFA and a traditional FA. And we were just explaining to each other, weren't we, why this might be useful for dentists to know, because I don't think this distinction is widely acknowledged or widely made clear. And I would love for you to put it in your own words. Absolutely. So as per the FCA definition, so FCA is the regulator, the financial conduct authority that regulates financial advice in the UK. There are different categories of investment advisors. So the first category is called restricted. That category means the advisors can only talk about the products offered by their company. So they're effectively restricted to a very narrow set of investments. The next step up is independent financial advisors, which in theory can access products from the whole of market. But because they tend to be one-man band type operations in the main, they will look at centralized investment propositions So effectively, it's again narrow, but compared to a restricted advisor, it's a bit broader. And then you have whole of market chartered financial advisors who have to do a much higher degree of qualifications and have a lot of expertise uh, and access to investment research to construct tailored bespoke portfolios. And within that, you've got chartered financial planners who don't just construct portfolios based on an assessment of your risk profile but actually talk you through your life's journey. So they help you make a master plan of your financial future. So if I take an example of a dentist, they start with being an associate and then they might want to own their practice uh, in their own personal lives. They might go from being single to having a family, having a partner. And from there, looking at the next 30 to 40 years of life, putting in the milestones on that journey and then setting a plan which is tailored for that journey. That is essentially what somebody like me a chartered financial planner does. Awesome. Thank you for that. When you referred to the to IFAs just a minute ago and you said that they tend to utilize centralized financial information, is that how you phrased it? What does yeah, that, so, what is what does that mean? Right. So uh, what the term I used is a centralized investment proposition. 
So uh, if let's say I was a one-man band IFA on the high street, uh, there is no way that I could research 4,000 investment funds or so that are available in the UK. So what I would do is I would choose a fund manager or a portfolio manager. There are so many out there uh, to do the investment research. So I would outsource that element. Um, so in effect, I would be relying on that firm to do the research. And a lot of these firms tend to be skewed towards using in-house products. So whilst that is better than using just a restricted advisor who talks about one company, it's uh, still not as good as someone who can really do it themselves, who has the capability in-house to carry out that kind of research. I see. Interesting. And how does a CFA, how is it that they have the means to do that versus our traditional IFAs, these one-man bands, so to speak? Is that because you work as a team, there are other CFAs around you and you somehow aggregate your knowledge? Is that the case? Yeah. So the first thing is that you have to do a lot more exams about investment research, analysis, taxation, and so on, which gives you a high level of expertise. Uh, But then it's also useful to have the research capability in the form of a much bigger organization behind you. So for example, the organization I'm associated with has got in-house investment research capabilities, and they've got access to research from uh, Financial Express, which is the biggest research firm in the UK. So the advantage is when you're talking to a firm which doesn't have any in-house products at all, no in-house funds, then there is no conflict of interest and the fund selection will be based on a true assessment of the market. That's where the difference lies. I'm so glad I asked you about that because I can't be the only one out there who must have heard these terms before and maybe necessarily there wasn't clarity on them. So thank you for clearing that up and that's absolutely brilliant. So CFAs, in your view, would be the gold standard and they are the, the, there is no successive level above that. And we should be all seeking CFAs for our advice, in your opinion. Yeah, I would say CFP, which is a Chartered Financial Planner, is the gold standard. Because uh, just advice in isolation doesn't mean much until you are able to connect it to your own life plans. So my plans could be very different to yours, James, and uh, everybody has their own journey. So someone might mind to retire at 50 somebody else might want to retire at 60 other people may have plans to buy a holiday home uh, children's education so all of these are goals which have milestones and sitting here today uh, one might be thinking I have some vague ideas in my mind but I really don't know what they would cost me so for example James uh, let me ask you a question when do you want to retire as soon as possible that would be lovely that would be great, wouldn't it? But realistically speaking, do you have any idea when you might be able to? Uh, okay, um, let's say I'll just go with what I feel is a fairly standard answer. I'll go late 50s, early 60s, something yeah. like that. And how would you feel if I could show you a way of retiring earlier with proper planning and forecasting? Absolutely, I'd be all ears. And that is really the crux of what I do. So I help you work out through a budget planning exercise what your lifestyle requirements will be in, for example, retirement or how much your children's education is likely to cost you in today's terms. Build that forward with inflation. So do some forecasting and projecting. And based on that, tell you what growth rate you need on your investments based on what you'll be contributing regularly, lump sums, whatever it might be. Um, And that plan, once it's in place, gives you a lot of reassurance in knowing that you'll be able to achieve exactly what you've set out to achieve Uh, We touch base once every six months because your goals change, 
circumstances change, investment markets change. So it's important to realign and rebalance the planning with reality, with how the portfolios are actually doing. And that puts you in charge. That gives you a very high probability of achieving what you've set out to achieve 20, 30, 40 years down the line. I see. That's interesting. So it's like a tailor-made journey, so to speak, and one that you keep on top of as an individual goes through life. It makes sense. Awesome. And what would you say the key things that you that we should all consider as part of our financial planning journey? What are the first questions that you ask? What are the most important things to that process? Yeah, that's a very, very important question, James. I'm glad you asked that. So um, I have a very simple model to describe what we do, uh, and that is called the PRISM model. Uh, The P stands for protection. So think of uh, a house, right? If you start building a house, then you need to have a strong foundation. If the house is brilliant, but the foundation is weak, then everything could come collapsing down, couldn't it? So the foundation is protecting yourself against the uncertainties life can bring. So I'm talking about the death of the main breadwinner in the family, uh, loss of income due to sickness uh, or disability. So the first thing is protect your income and make provisions if something happens to you for your dependents and family and so on. Another element to it may be business protection. So if you have partners in the dental practice, for example, who rely on you being there, uh, what would happen to the business continuity if you're gone? So it's that that kind of thing which needs to be covered first. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. One, yeah, great. So once you've covered that, then you start thinking about your future goals. That's the kind of thing we really like to think about. So everybody loves talking about their, their own favorite investments. Somebody says Bitcoin, somebody says property. The reality is that the best investment strategy is a combination of all of these or some of these. And that can only be ascertained once we know what are the goals that you've got. So within the investment strategy comes the attitude to risk, the return that you need to achieve your goals, which we do based on what I said earlier, the budget planning exercise and goal setting. And then we talk about tax, right? Uh, Nobody loves tax, right? And there are three types of tax which we help clients mitigate not by doing anything dodgy, but by using allowances and tools the government gives us. So I'll expand on that in our discussion later, but that's a very important part of things as well. Tax planning. So reducing tax that you pay by careful planning. So the P is protection. R is retirement planning. I is investing for your other future goals, such as children's education, buying a property, whatever it might be. S is savings. So making sure that you've got enough emergency funds set aside to make sure that you can invest the other capital long term and M stands for mortgages. So making sure that you have your own home. And if you want to have property as an investment class, then you do buy to let or commercial investments along the side. Real quick, guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The Seven Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes that dentists make whenever it comes to their finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened. And that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistuinvest.com forward slash podcast report. Or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts.
Great stuff. And what would you say out of those things that you mentioned, what are the unique challenges that face dentists that you see most commonly versus other professions? So uh, for dentists, the biggest challenge is uh, continuity in the profession. So because it's a much more um, intensive and manual job, as opposed to sitting on a desk, uh, dentists have in mind that at a certain point of time, they want to reduce their hours or they might want to just retire completely. So they uh, want to be looking at other ways of generating income and investment returns, for example, buying new practices, or investing their surplus capital in a way that they're able to achieve fire or financial independence earlier in life. Uh, They're also concerned about the impact of illness or disability because you have to have a lot of precision, right? With those tools that you use to do your implants or fillings or whatever. If if that hand doesn't work properly, uh, then that's it. You can't uh, make uh, make that earning anymore. So it's making sure that your protected race, all that, that is also top of their concern. But other than that, it's concerns which everybody shares, which is uh, especially being self-employed, understanding how to uh, draw your income in the most tax efficient way. What is the best way of structuring it? Do I go self-employed? Do I go a limited company route? LLP, what do I do? Um, Pensions, NHS pensions is a big one I come across. Uh, they don't make it easy to get your head around and uh, we are experts in unraveling the complexity so we can make sure uh, you understand what the benefits uh, that the pension will give you. It's a gold-plated pension, fantastic, but what other provisions you need to make and we do the gap analysis for that too. Interesting stuff. Yeah, when you were talking there a second ago about health and wellness being a big concern of dentists and just how much our job relies on us being fit and able to work. That is a massive thing. Okay. And here's the thing about being a dentist. You can earn as much as you like, but eventually, unless you have planned to save that money that you're accruing or invest it, you're always going to have to go back to work because of inflation, unless you find a way to make your money work for you. Even if you earn 300 grand, 400 grand, a year, anything like that. And here's the thing about dentistry. It is the ultimate job, which is an exchange of time for money for most of us, because you have to go to work. You physically have to go to work to earn some money because most most associates are, of course, self-employed. What do you normally say to those dentists who say to you, Rohit, I need to think about making my money work for me. Do you say invest? Do you say get a side business? Do you say... I don't know. What do you say? I'm interested. So, yeah, absolutely. That's a very good question. Uh, and it's a combination of the things you mentioned. So uh, first of all, it depends on how much time and effort one is willing to put in. And second, it depends on one's aspirations for the future, the kind of lifestyle they desire. So uh, before we go into that, uh, let me just talk to you about the financial independence point you mentioned. So uh, if you go back in time to the 70s, Um, the average life expectancy was in the region of 74, 75 years. So you could retire at 65 and expect to live for 10 years, which means that attaining financial independence was very easy. Uh, Your company, your employer would typically give you a guaranteed income, or if you were self-employed, you could take out a pension and 10 years, not that long. Uh, But now uh, the life expectancy is already 82 for men, 84 for women. And if you're talking about the dentist in their 40s or 50s, they could realistically aim to live beyond 90. Anybody younger will probably live in even longer. 
So that's 30 to 40 to 50 years in retirement. And if you don't do proper planning, then the risk is running out of money in later life and having to come back to work. There could be nothing worse, especially in a profession like dentistry. Therefore, having a clear plan is very, very important. Okay. Um, now, coming back to your question, if you can invest as a dentist into building value, so you already understand what is involved uh, in terms of the regulation, in terms of structuring the business side of the practice. If you've come to that stage and your aspiration is then to get your own practice and maybe build a network of practices, by all means do that. It brings a level of responsibility. It brings a level of challenge. And some people really thrive on that. So for them, I would say, go for it. And any surplus capital that you're accruing, we can advise you on the structure. So the limited company structure, we can have a separate investment company, for example. We can help you draw the income tax efficiently. So we can work alongside you in terms of being your financial partners and advisors, uh, making the most of your tax situation and investment capital. For the other type, which is people who just want a relatively chilled lifestyle, uh, they say we're happy being associates or employees of the corporate. Um, again, the thing is, let's build an investment strategy. And what's common across both of those is basics. So people ask me, uh, do you give anything for free? I say, yes, there's only one free lunch in investing. And that is the, the art of regular investing. So uh, it's a very simple exercise. And I would encourage everybody to do this, whether you seek advice or not professionally. And that's working out how much you earn. So what's your income every month and how much do you spend? Um, Doing that sort of budget planning exercise gives you your disposable income and that allows you to save and invest on a disciplined, regular basis. That, that is really, really powerful and can go a long way. Uh, they say that the ocean fills up drop by drop and that's so true when it comes to investing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I fully empathize with dentists as well because lots of us go through our careers and our bandwidth is so saturated by clinical dentistry because there is just an insane amount to learn. It's very easy just to not even devote a small amount of time to this sort of stuff, which can pay dividends later in life. And that's the message of Dentists Who Invest. And that's why I wanted to create this page. And that's why I have got people like yourself on is to allow us dentists to see that actually in doing so, we're actually restricting ourselves in the long run, in my opinion. And what it can also mean is that we have no proper plans in place when we reach re retirement age. It's so important to have these conversations. And would I be right in saying that there is no such time as too early to have these sorts of conversations during a career? Or is there a perfect time to wait? There is uh, no perfect time. The time is now, I would say. Uh, there are clients I've worked with in their 50s who've got five to 10 years to retirement and they've made a real difference. Obviously, if you start at, say, 30 or 25, you will have a massive advantage over someone who starts at 40, say, but it's never too late. Uh, talking to someone who is a trusted partner who can uh, look at your life's journey in a very objective way can take away uh, that element of emotion and can really focus on, really help you focus on what lies ahead. So my job uh, when I do lifetime cash flow planning is... Uh, taking you through a journey of what the next 30, 40 years look like, coming back to the present, quantifying all those milestones that you want to achieve, and then uh, putting in a strategy to achieve that. It is as simple as that. So it needs to be dynamic, it needs to be tailored, and it needs to be disciplined. And all that can be brought in by talking to a trusted advisor like me. 
you mentioned something off camera. That was the concept of human capital. Yeah. And I was so intrigued to learn more about that. Can you talk a little bit more about that for the benefits of the audience and for myself as well, of course? Yeah, absolutely. So, James, you're doing fantastic work um, in financial education, for example, right? So you're putting in a lot of effort talking to me and other experts, other great people that are out there to teach various skills and so on. Uh, in a similar way, dentists work day in, day out uh, to make a difference, to help their patients. But ultimately, uh, we are all in it for the money, right? Eventually, because uh, what we do, we exchange our time, that is human capital, for financial reward. And there are two ways of looking at life. One not so nice way would be to keep working till you drop dead, right? So you work X amount of time and you, you get paid Y. And that Y hopefully goes up as you build up your skills and knowledge. Um, or you are smart and you put your surplus investment capital that you are generating. So working X, earning Y. So put a small amount Z out of Y. We talked about regular investing and lump sum investing. So put that away so that it grows ahead of inflation. So you've worked hard to earn that capital and now it's working hard for you. And then you reach a stage in life by doing that where you say, I don't need to work anymore. So I've accumulated my uh, investment capital and that investment capital now is enough to keep working for me. How nice it would be, James, for example, if I was to tell you, you can have the income you want to live your lifestyle, to travel around the world, to play the games you want to play, go out to restaurants you want to go to, and you don't have to work, right? Uh, a person like you would probably still want to work uh, to, you know, for your own satisfaction. That's very important. But the key thing is you, there would be no need or compulsion to, be, to meet your standard of living requirements. And that's really what this transition from human capital to investment capital is all about. It's financial freedom. I love that. Yeah. And you know what, as you said, I think you just said something really important there, because for a lot of people, I think that there is a huge onus on the privilege or the right to not work. But actually, that's maybe even something that wouldn't necessarily be satisfying for a lot of people, because some people just have that innate drive or want yep. to be able to contribute towards something. And even when you reach that point of yep. retirement, it still manifests somehow. It just means yep. that you don't turn up to the workplace every day. And maybe that means you join an organization or whatever you do. But here's the thing. It's not about that. It's about giving yourself the option, okay? The option, the safety net, and a fallback. Would that be the right way of explaining it? Absolutely that. Absolutely. Uh, it gives you the freedom. I that's why I prefer financial freedom to retirement in describing that stage. So it gives you the freedom to do what you want to do. So you might want to take up something which doesn't uh, give you financial reward, but gives you a lot of uh, satisfaction, sense of fulfillment. So just by way of example, I was talking to uh, a dentist who I advised, and he's now in a position where uh, his investments will meet his lifestyle needs. Um, and he has taken up a new profession as a teacher. So uh, he says, I trained as a teacher and I'm now teaching uh, secondary children uh, medicine and sorry, not medicine, biology uh, and science. The reason for that is it gives me a lot of satisfaction in terms of creating the next generation of doctors, dentists, whatever it might be. So th that's probably paying him very little and he's not in it for the money. But now that he doesn't need to work uh, for, for his, meeting his lifestyle needs, it gives him that freedom, that choice. And it's all about that. 
That's great. Good on that guy, whoever he is. Or was you said it was a, a chap, wasn't it? That's what you said. Absolutely, he yeah. wasn't it. That's awesome. Fair play to him, whoever he is. Awesome. So, what do you think? Having said all these things, let's use. So you you, you juxtapose the two terms there: retirement and financial freedom. Yeah, that's what you said a second ago. I'm sure. So, yeah. retirement versus financial freedom. What do you think is a feasible age that should we as dentists leave dental school and immediately start taking our future into our own hands or financial freedom or uh, sorry, our financial, our financial future and financial planning. We immediately begin to start thinking about that. What is a feasible age for most to attain a salary and what they could live on? What is a feasible age that they might reach to, for most people yeah. that, that we might aspire towards and how soon can that happen realistically? Right. So very good question. And the answer to that is it depends. Uh, It's individual to each person, but there are some common trends. So, for example, when you start out, um, you pass out of dental school um, and you do your uh, internship or uh, training for a year before you get your performer status. Um, During that stage, uh, you're probably going to focus on just building your emergency funds, uh, getting a deposit together to buy a house. Uh, so at that stage, probably the priority is towards using the uh, allowances you get, like lifetime ISAs and stuff to invest into those and build up a deposit. Once you've done that, then you can really start to think about, think about long-term goals. So for some people, that might be looking at having a family. For others, it might be just looking to travel uh, a little bit more and save for that. So goals might be different. But the earlier you start on that journey, the better it will be because it gives you longer to A, invest, so your capital is going to be a lot greater. And bear in mind, you don't have to invest lump sums necessarily. Uh, regular investing is very, very powerful, right? Even if you can afford to save a couple of hundred pounds a month, do it. Because over time, that builds up a huge value if you're doing it at a very young age. Awesome. So yeah, it's going to be unique to all of us. I suppose another way of saying it is, what is the earliest that you've seen someone attain that level, that point? in your career, someone that you've helped perhaps? Financial freedom? Yeah, yeah, the point where they don't have to work anymore. 35. 35, <laughs> wow. Fair play. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Absolutely. So that I have uh, dealt with many clients who are ISA millionaires, for example. Mm. The humble ISA, a lot of people say, is it any good? Actually, it gives you £20,000 per year to put into anything you want investment-wise. And it gives you tax-free capital gains, tax-free income, tax-free returns. So just by doing that for, um, you know, if let's say we're talking about a husband and wife or two partners or whatever it might be, £40,000 a year in a tax-efficient wrapper. You do that over 10 years and with the growth, if you're uh, in luck, then it could touch a million pounds over 10 years. And that's the kind of power we're talking about in investing. Mm. And that, that particular individual... Did they invest much in individual shares or was that very much your buy indexes, buy and hold and gradually average your way in? Or was it a little bit of both? Maybe you can't go into those specifics. I'm just curious as to how they did that. Yeah, that's a very, very, you bring us to a very uh, important aspect of um, investing strategy. The debate between passive investing and active investing and going directly into shares versus other things. And we can touch upon other avenues like property and Bitcoin and so on right? These are all great investments in their own right. It's about understanding how they interplay with each other. And 
how they relate back to your goals and your attitude to risk. So if you're investing directly into stocks, the question you've got to ask yourself is how well do you understand the market? Um, do you have the know-how to evaluate volatility, um, the future return expectations? Do you have that know-how? Or are you just taking a punt based on what you're reading in financial newspapers? Um, I have a very interesting full form for the acronym NEWS, and that's Negative Events World Service. So one thing which I can say to everybody straight away is never make any decisions based on what the media is telling you, because um, you know it's a pretty sad habit I've got. But I tend to collect, uh, you know, articles from uh, the FT. Uh, you must have read the FT and, uh, you know, the Times. They have these sections, personal money, mentor, and so on. So uh, the flavor of one month may be gold. The next month may be property. The following month may be, I don't know, value stocks. The other will be growth stocks or going to IT stocks. All this, right, is just because they want to sell the news. Uh, in reality, nobody knows what is going to be the best performing asset class. Last year, it was uh, small companies took a real beating. This year, small companies were up 40%. Uh, defensive stocks uh, last year held up quite well. But this year, the growth has been pretty, uh, pretty moderate on that. So it's about having a diversific diversified portfolio. If you don't understand the investment you're going into, then seek professional advice and get it managed. That will give you a better outcome than just taking a punt in the dark. Uh, and when it comes to other asset classes like property, you've got to understand that having buy-to-let property is a good way of building your assets. But you have to ask yourself, is it going to meet my liquidity needs? Yes, I have got that asset on paper, but unless I sell it, can I get the 10 or 20K I need from that? So uh, considering all of these, uh, my own view is that a fund-based approach where you have a portfolio constructed for you uh, either by going online to one of these fund supermarkets if you're doing small amounts, or if you're really serious about building substantial assets, then paying somebody like me to do it for you uh, so that it's exactly tailored for your life's journey. It's tax efficient. And there are regular periodic checks every three to six months on how you're progressing against those goals. So hopefully that gives you a flavor. Definitely. Well, that's maybe something that I... I wasn't aware that FAs would ever go to the depths or go to the level of uh, investing in individual companies because it becomes that more much more complex at, the, at that point. Did I understand that correctly? So maybe is that something that a CFA is more likely to do versus an IFA or an FA? Or was that what you were getting at? Or Right. So uh, it's going directly into stocks. Um, is something that would be done by a stockbroker typically, not by an advisor. Yeah. Uh, an advisor would help you select investment funds. Right. Where okay. the decisions on which stocks to pick up are made by a fund management team. So right. that typically gives you global diversification. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you uh, an overview of how we construct portfolios. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we would look at your preferences. So uh, someone might prefer emerging markets, others might prefer Europe, America, and all that. So for most people, though, it's having a truly globally diversified portfolio. So the process starts with working out what is the optimal asset allocation. So how much do we allocate to Germany, France, Italy? How much do we put in Canada, US? So create a global sort of asset allocation index. And then based on that, choose the best funds in those markets. Okay. That, historically speaking, from our analysis shows, 
is responsible for 70% of your investment returns. It's not the stocks you pick, not the companies you invest in. 70% of your return is asset allocation, which sectors and which countries you go into. And that needs to be revised and rebalanced on an ongoing basis um, to really take the lowest amount of risk and achieve a more consistent return. So that is certainly the strategy preferred by most uh, advisors, whether it's uh, IFAs on the high street or chartered financial advisors. Uh, there are some people who prefer investing in stocks directly, but you've got to be aware of the pitfalls that uh, if you do it yourself, you may get it wrong and lose a lot of money. If you're doing it through a stockbroker, typically it's execution only, uh, and you can only do UK stocks, right? So you're restricted to the UK economy, which is 7%, just 7% of the world stock market capitalization. So uh, these are some of the limitations, I would say. However, you know, uh, some people enjoy. There's another side to investing, which is people enjoy researching and choosing their stocks. So there's always uh, a rule of 80-20, I say to clients. 80% of your investment capital, get it invested in a responsible way. The other 20%, by all means, take a punt with it. Uh, go for Bitcoin. You might become a Bitcoin billionaire, right? At least you're learning about it. The technology has a lot of potential uh, and it could give strong returns. On the other hand, uh, everybody's aware of the volatility it exhibits. So increase your knowledge, get some exposure. The same thing goes to direct stocks. But those kind of assets should form 20% of the capital you're prepared to lose and the other 80% should be invested, in my view, more responsibly. I hear you. Yeah, I think that's a completely reasonable thing to say. And I feel as well that if we are someone, let's say we are we are someone and we take all of our portfolio and we allocate it to something which is totally risk averse, in effect, mm -hmm. that is preserving our capital. But will we ever see capital growth to the point realistically over a period of years that might attain us financial freedom? It's going to take us a hell of a lot longer than it would do otherwise. Like people who are totally risk averse and they're saying, okay, what well, I want to put my all my money in like 10-year bonds. Ten, you know, the yields on US 10-year is like 1.5% at the minute. It's not even going to beat inflation. So I guess what I'm saying is we need to be aware that risk can be utilized to be our friend and not yeah. always something that we're totally averse to. And that's why I'm pleased to hear you say that it's a reasonable thing in your opinion to do, to take 80% of your money and put it in things that are things that are seen to be reliable in the long run and in, in, in terms of producing returns and then taking the 20%, another 20% and maybe investing in something slightly more speculative because this is where the real magic can happen over here with the 20%. But then of course, everybody's going to be different horses for courses and that 20%, it may work out for some people and it may not work. It may not work out for others. It depends on the individual, but I'm pleased to hear you say that you're acknowledging that in the first place, because in my, in my experience, a lot of FAs would actually say, let's stay away from even taking that 20% and doing something a little bit more speculative with it, because that 20% could be contributing towards our long-term portfolio. But then in effect, the thing that I suppose frustrates me slightly when I hear that is I say to myself I say I would say to those people but you're as good as saying to that person you have to work for the next 40 30 40 years of your life realistically until you get a pot that is sufficient to achieve your goals and that may that may work for some people but some people may hate their jobs some people may want another option and for those people offering them that tailor advice that to hear you say that has allowed me to understand that even from someone who's a professional in the industry, 
that that is something that's viable and that's something that you may suggest to your your clients yeah by all means absolutely and that's really that goes back to uh financial planner versus a financial advisor so if, if you go back um, on how the industry operated uh, before 2012 it operated on commissions and part of this thinking the old-fashioned thinking comes from there so uh, i'm not saying that advisors were necessarily driven by commission but that may have led to a bias in how solutions were recommended or funds were recommended in the past and that still lingers on unfortunately with some people but People who are financial planners like me, uh, not advisors alone, will do their advice or give you advice based on what's right for you. So if you have that attitude to risk, which means that you're comfortable and you understand what you're getting into, then I would encourage you to do that with the 20%. Uh, Also, uh, expanding on the other 80%, you talked about investing in things like government bonds, uh, like US treasury bonds and things like that. This 80% doesn't go into those assets necessarily. It goes into equities too. So uh, equities, which are the great companies of the world. So the Teslas, Amazons uh, of the world, uh, Tesco's, right? GSK, all of these large companies all around the world, um, which can be volatile. So volatility is different from risk. Uh, You can have periods where the stock market goes up and down. But if you look at any period of time, longer than five years, going back 130 years of stock market history, you will not find a period where an investor has lost money by investing in good quality funds. And that really goes a long way in explaining this. So really what it's about is dividing your capital and goals into three categories, short term, which is zero to three years, medium term, which is three to 10, and long term, which is 10 years plus. So goals that are within three years, that money you should keep in cash, of course, because you don't want it taking a last minute nosedive. Uh, For the medium to long-term goals, you can follow the 80-20 rule. So for the 80%, if you are at least 10 years away from your goal, then you could go um, majority equity, 80 to 90% equity, because these are all the great companies of the world. No matter what happens, you know, crises like uh, the world stock market crash, um, and the dot-com bubble in 2001 and 2008. We all know what happened in COVID. So all these things will come and go. But overall, the valuations of stock markets have gone up massively. They have been the single best asset class across property, bonds, everything, right? So, um, and, and they, over the long term, the companies of the world will innovate and they will work around challenges like climate change, like you know artificial intelligence, genetics, and all these things will develop into propositions which we don't know. So the next Googles and Amazons of the world would be in these fields, climate change and artificial intelligence, robotics, for example. Medical science is another one of that, right? Uh, So think of a dentist being able to use a robotic arm to do their work uh, halfway across the world. These things could become reality soon enough. So it's uh, that kind of thing we are talking about. So have that as the investment class, you know, in the 80% that we talked about, Yes, 20%, do what interests you, right? Mm. You have to enjoy investing. For some people, again, it's sources of courses, as you said, some people don't want to do it. They say, um, my time is valuable. I want to uh, spend time with my family, play golf, whatever is it I love doing. And I would rather pay somebody to do 100% of it. That's great. No problem with that. But if you enjoy doing it uh, and you take the effort to learn, learning and understanding what you're getting into is important. And if you can do that, then 
absolutely do that because life is not about just money and returns. It's also about enjoyment, isn't it? There you go. I like that. And you know what? Horses for courses, just like you said. And I'm interested to hear you say that because my maybe well wrong right right or wrong my presumption of an FA and their role and their remit was to choose was to sheerly advise on these things that were seen to be more safe like uh, like how you were saying earlier about indexes like the S&P or <laughs> bond, like having a certain allocation of your portfolio in bonds and whilst you are saying that that is something that we should do you're also saying that realistically in the short term there, you're accommodating to that 20% of cash as well, which can be a little bit more speculative, but is also where the magic can happen. And I actually didn't know that FAs were uh, permitted to do that or, well, I just didn't really know that that was in, within the remit. So I suppose that's the thing that's unique about being a CFA. Yeah, absolutely. Financial planner is the keyword. I keep going back to that. So uh, you, any advisor that you talk to when you're evaluating who you want to work with, uh, just ask them, A, are they independent? B, do they do the investment research in-house? And C, do they use cash flow planning that is done with you live, okay, live with the client? Uh, if the answer to any of these questions is no, it's probably not worth doing the business with. And the other thing to look at is who do you relate with? It's, it's going to be your trusted friend, your philosopher and guide on the financial front for the rest of your life. Uh, so just make sure that you can build that bond and that trust. That is the most important thing. So um, people have different approaches. They have different personalities. And it's important to have that connection. In my view. Brilliant. And you know what? On that note, what a lovely place to just round off because I think that drew a line under everything. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Rohit. Some real gems in there. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. I'm sure you have. Really, I very much enjoyed myself today. It's always great to talk to you, James, and the work that you're doing in terms of financial education and bringing lots of expertise to dentists uh, is really commendable. So well done and keep the good work, I would say. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Do you know the podcast just turned a week? It just turned a year old, sorry, a week ago. So uh, that is really exciting because that makes me think we're just getting started as well. Awesome, Rohit. Thank you so much for your time and we will catch up very soon. Thank you. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.